Okay, please take your Bibles this evening and turn to Jeremiah 26. For the born-again believer zealous for righteousness, this world can be a somewhat discouraging place at times. Certainly we have seen in Jeremiah and, and, and we see in our own day the hardness of hearts. We even read about it in that newsletter from the craze in the Netherlands this evening. And we must understand that throughout history, this has always existed to one degree or another, the hardness of hearts. We read about it all throughout the Word of God, all throughout the many hundreds of years of history, the thousands of years of history that it reflects. It is indeed the very essence of why our journey in this life is called a sojourn. This world is not our home. And to that end, this world never will be our home. Now, it's important in the midst of all of these things. It's important in the midst of the recognition of the struggles that, of, of this life, of, of the, the reality that this world, uh, that we are strangers in this world, that we are sojourners in this world, to maintain a perspective. And normally this perspective comes, if I may put it this way, from the elders among us, those who have lived long enough to see the battle over good and evil firsthand, who have tales from the trenches, if we may say it that way, and who can offer us a perspective on the reality of good in the midst of the onslaught of evil. And tonight, the scriptures are our teacher as we see a certain subset of people in the land that are perhaps going to encourage our hearts. Most certainly, in Jeremiah's day, encouraged his heart, reminding him thus that there are good people in the land, at least at the time in which we're speaking. We're in Jeremiah 26. In verse 1 of Jeremiah 26, the Bible says this, In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, came this word from the Lord, saying... So once again, we place ourselves in the context of the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, also called Eliakim. We're going back in time here, and remember what I said last time we were together. We're going back in time, maybe sort of. Uh, we are, generally speaking, understanding our time frame to be at the end of the reign of Jehoiachin, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah. And so we understand uh, that to be the context. And then we've seen a couple of times us go back to the reign of Jehoiakim. And uh, we, we can understand this and most naturally understand this to, to say that, yes, we're going back in time. Jeremiah is writing about things that have happened in the past or, or, what, or, these, or these events are out of order. They're more thematic. Uh, organized than they are chronologically organized and all of those things are fine but once again uh, I remind you that that when we get to next week's text what we're going to find is we're going to find a circumstance where we read about something that was given in the days of Jeremiah but actually takes place or actually comes to fruition or actually is declared in the days of Zedekiah. So there's something like an 11 year, 12 year, maybe even 15 year gap between when Jeremiah got the message and when Jeremiah, when the message actually becomes relevant, when Jeremiah actually gives the message to the people. That will make more sense as we look at what's happening next week. However, uh, to the best of our knowledge, we are going back in time here. Um, 
to this time of the, the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. That would be at this time somewhere around 609 B.C. This then is before any of the captivities, right? Because the first captivity, the first deportation is in 605 B.C. And that's actually going to play an interesting role in tonight's message in a manner of speaking. So we have established already, remember that there were three deportations, right? The first deportation taking place in 605. And since we're in the BC timetable, where 605 is, is later than 609, right? Because we're counting backwards instead of counting forwards. And so 605 was the first deportation. And then we had 598. Uh, and then we had 586. And those are those three deportations or 597 98 and then the 586 deportation uh, so jeremiah receives this message as best we can tell and, and and within our timetable before babylon has has besieged the nation before anyone has been carried into captivity four years in fact before anyone's been carried into captivity at the beginning of the reign of jehoiakim uh, who, whose reign began very soon after Jehoahaz, who only reigned for three months. And Jehoahaz, of course, came immediately after Josiah, who was a good king who reigned for 31 years. So that's our context as we continue in verses 2 and 3. And the Bible says this, Thus saith the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house, and speak unto all the cities of Judah, which come to worship in the Lord's house, all the words that I command thee to speak unto them. Diminish not a word. If so be, they will hearken and turn every man from his evil way that I may repent me of the evil which I purpose to do unto them because of the evil of their doing. So God commands Jeremiah to go and to stand in the court of the Lord's house, the court of the temple, and to speak to those who come to worship. Now, this is not the first time Jeremiah has been called to go to the court of the temple and to speak. There are times where he's been called to go to the gate of the temple and speak. There have been times where he's been called to go to the court of the temple. In Jeremiah chapter 7, God told Jeremiah to stand at the gate of the Lord's house and to declare his word. In Jeremiah 19, just before, before being thrown in the stocks, right, uh, Jeremiah prophesied in the court of the Lord's house as well. Remember, that's where he went to the valley and he prophesied in the valley and then he came back to the court of the Lord's house and he prophesied there at which point he was put in the stocks for the night. And God tells Jeremiah here to speak strongly what God commands him to not diminish a word. Don't change a word. Don't diminish a word. Don't reduce it uh, just because it might hurt someone's feelings. Stick to the message that I have told you to give to the letter. And notice why. God says, because his deepest desire, he wants them to hear every word he has to say, because every word is essential, they need to hear every word so that they might repent. God's deepest desire is that the nation, in hearing the force of the word of the Lord, would hear and would repent to turn from their evil so that God may turn from his evil, which he intended to do upon them. Now, remember that at this point, as we've studied, particularly as we get to the days of Zedekiah, there's already this realization, right? They've already gone through the 605 deportation. They've already gone through the 597, 98 deportation. There's this realization in prophecy that they're not getting away, that Babylon has already come and they're going to finish the job. But now we're in 609. Babylon hasn't even come yet. 
there's still hope. There's still opportunity. And remember that as we see this. God wants to show them mercy, but he is constrained by his holy character to judge them unless they get themselves on his side through repentance. And this is, the, this is who God is. This is who God is in every generation. God longs to show mercy to every man, to every woman. This is who God is. But just because he wants to, and this is a question that might often come up when you're talking to people. Well, if God wants to, if God loves everyone, then why doesn't God just let everyone into heaven? Well, there is a reason. Because God is holy, which is why he sent his son, that God might be just and the justifier of them that believe. And praise God for that. Verses 4 through 6. And thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, If ye will not hearken to me, to walk in my law, which I have set before you, to hearken to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I send unto you, both rising up early and sending them, but ye have not hearkened, then will I make this house like Shiloh, and will make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. The message is one of persistent familiarity at this point. If you don't listen to the word of God, to the, to the, the, the word of the Lord, to the law of God, according to the words of the servants and the prophets whom I have sent unto you. Once again, we see this, this illusion that we talked about last time of the prophets rising early and coming. God has been proactive. God has shown initiative. God has done this for generations. He has sent his prophets to them. And God says, if you don't listen to my prophets, then I will make this house like Shiloh. And the city will be a curse to all nations. It will be an accursed city. Now, before we move on to a, a very unique and intriguing response of the people, let's establish this reference to Shiloh. We don't have the most definitive reference here. We can't go back to explicit chapter and verse on this, but Shiloh, we know, was the first home of the tabernacle when it came into the land of Canaan, when it entered into the promised land, Shiloh was the place where the tabernacle was first established. In the days of Eli, Shiloh was the place where God's presence rested, where the Ark of the Covenant rested. But remember that in the days of Eli, the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines, and it did not get back to the temple, to the tabernacle or the temple, until the days of David. And so the Ark of the Covenant is removed from Shiloh. Eli is killed, his sons are killed, and the city and the tabernacle fell effectively into irrelevance. And that's the idea here. For Jeremiah to prophesy that the city of Zion, that the city of Jerusalem, would become like Shiloh is a warning that God was going to judge the city, remove his presence, remove his blessing, and effectively make Jerusalem and the temple that was there irrelevant to him. Now, naturally, this response to this w was quite negative, but, but not, not just negative. I mean, it was negative, right? All caps with an exclamation point, exclamation point at the end. It was a very negative response. So if we had just stopped reading Jeremiah at chapter 25, we might have thought that Jeremiah was just kind of like that fly that buzzes around you all day. You know, and, and kind of annoys you and you're swatting at it all day. Like, that, that, that'd be kind of what Jeremiah was to the nation. That no one even really cared what he had to say. That they're just going and doing their thing. And, oh, it's just crazy Jeremiah again up there. You know, prophesying of the, 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 the city being destroyed again. But that's not actually it. 
Here we are in 609 B.C., and this chapter helps us understand that the people really did hear his message and were not at all pleased with what they heard. Verses 7 through 9, the Bible says this, So the priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. Now it came to pass when Jeremiah had made an end of speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak unto all the people, that the priests and the prophets and the people took him, saying, Thou shalt surely die. Why hast thou prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate without an inhabitant? And all the people were gathered against Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. So a mob begins uh, when he says these words. A mob begins and they, they, they surround him and they say, Jeremiah, we are going to kill you. You are going to die. The priests, the prophets, the people are not happy, obviously, at what Jeremiah has to say. Jeremiah was finished. They threatened to kill him. The natural reason why you should die is that they are proclaiming him to be a false prophet. He is speaking in the name of the Lord, that which they say is not true. According to Deuteronomy 18.20, false prophet was to die. And like an impetuous child who doesn't hear, save what he wants to hear, when Jeremiah proclaimed something that was utterly distasteful to their ears, they threw a fit. Rather than allowing such an extreme declaration to get a hold of their hearts and to show just how upset God was at them, they sought to destroy the messenger. It caused an angry, vitriolic reaction, and they sought to react violently against him. So the people gather against Jeremiah. But then something happens. Something really encouraging happens. Something I wouldn't expect if I'm reading Jeremiah from chapter 1 to chapter 26. Beginning in verse 10. When the princes of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house unto the house of the Lord and sat down at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. Then spake the priests and the prophets unto the princes and to all the people, saying, This man is worthy to die, for he hath prophesied against this city, as ye have heard with your ears. Then spake Jeremiah unto all the princes and to all the people, saying, The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and against this city all the words that ye have heard. Therefore now amend your ways and your doings, and obey the voice of the Lord your God, and the Lord will repent him of the evil that he hath pronounced against you. As for me, behold, I am in your hand. Do with me as seemeth good." And meat unto you, but know ye for certain that if ye put me to death, ye shall surely bring innocent blood upon yourselves, and upon the city, and upon the inhabitants thereof. For of a truth the Lord has sent me unto you to speak all these words in your ears. Not, not super encouraging yet, but stay with me, we're getting there. Upon the charge that Jeremiah must be killed, they bring out the, the princes. And uh, the, these would be the civil and religious authorities who would get involved in authorizing a execution. Effectively, these are called the princes of Judah. They would be instrumental in deciding whether or not Jeremiah was indeed worthy of death. So the princes come from the king's house into the house of the Lord. They sit at the gate where judgment would take place and they hear what the priests and the prophets and the princes or the priests and the prophets and the people would accuse Jeremiah of and they accuse him of effectively false 
prophecy. They accuse him to be worthy of death because he prophesied against the city. Now, Jeremiah then has a chance to respond, and his response is simply, I did, in fact, prophesy against the city because that is what the Lord told me to prophesy. God told it to me. I'm telling it to you. Now repent so he doesn't have to destroy you, right? And he says, however, he says, this is the message from the Lord. Do with me whatever you want. Whatever you choose to do with me is fine. I'm just the messenger. But know this, that if you kill me, that's more innocent blood. Because this is from the Lord. Because God has sent me to speak these words. So Jeremiah gives this warning. He, he validates the message. The response we see, beginning in verse 16. Then said the princes and all the people unto the priests and to the prophets, This man is not worthy to die. For he hath spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Huh. Yes. Yay, right? What? Yes, this is it. He has. That, he's right. They're right. Good. Good princes. Thank you, princes. We've been looking for this. This is what we want to hear. Someone has listened. They agree. Someone acknowledges that what Jeremiah is saying is true. Thank you, princes. And it gets even better. Verses 17 to 19. Then rose up certain of the elders of the land and spake to all the assembly of the people, saying, Micah the Morishthite prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and spake to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field. And Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of a forest. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him at all to death? Did he not fear the Lord and besought the Lord, and the Lord repented him of the evil which he had pronounced against them? Thus might we procure great evils, evil, excuse me, against our souls. So these elders perhaps whom were some of the princes, perhaps whom were, were simply others sitting there uh, at the time, speak. And they, having a, a deeper understanding of the history, perhaps uh, these are they who lived through all of Josiah and uh, to this time and, and, and are rooted in the history of the kings of the past. And they say to the people, remember Micah, Micah the Morristite. This is, in fact, the prophet who wrote the book of Micah, by the way. He prophesied in the days of Hezekiah. And he said, remember that in the days of Hezekiah the king, Micah speaks up and he says, if you don't amend your ways, then Zion will be plowed like a field and Jerusalem would become heaps. By the way, they're quoting Micah chapter 3, verse 12. And they ask to the people and to these priests and to the prophets, did Hezekiah kill Micah for that? Or did Hezekiah repent and God turned away his wrath? God showed mercy. And they say, look, if you kill Jeremiah, we are going to procure more evil upon ourselves because he's giving the same message that Micah gave in the days of Hezekiah. Hezekiah didn't respond this way. Hezekiah responded with humility. Of course, Hezekiah was a very good king. So then they warn, if they killed Jeremiah, it would be the opposite of wisdom, the opposite of good. It would be in their disfavor. Where have these guys been, huh? 
Where are they for most of Jeremiah's ministry? Well, we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But they aren't finished speaking yet. They're being very careful here because Jehoiakim is the king. Jehoiakim is by no means Hezekiah. And in fact, their next example is going to reflect very poorly on Jehoiakim. So they say this in verses 20 to 23. And there was also a man that prophesied in the name of the Lord, Urijah, the son of Shemaiah of Kirjath-Jerim, who prophesied against this city and against the land according to all the words of Jeremiah. And when Jehoiakim, the king, with all his mighty men and all the princes, heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Urijah heard it, he was afraid and fled and went to, into Egypt. And Jehoiakim, the king, sent men into Egypt, namely Elnathan, the son of Akbor, and certain men with him into Egypt. And they fetched forth Urijah out of Egypt and brought him unto Jehoiakim, the king, who slew him with the sword and cast his dead body into the graves of the common people. So now the elders say this, right? These are the elders. There was Hezekiah. Micah the Morstite in the days of Hezekiah wrote and prophesied that Jerusalem would become heaps if there was not repentance. Hezekiah listened. Hezekiah repented. And Jerusalem was spared. But there was also this guy, Urijah, in the days of Jeho Jehoiakim. I, we don't know if, if this would, would be in the days. It does say Jehoiakim, the king here. So presumably this is a fairly recent event. We're talking current events now. Jehoiakim sends, uh, wants to kill Urijah. So Urijah, hearing it, flees to Egypt. And Jehoiakim literally sends bounty hunters to go down there and get him and bring him back to kill him and to cast him uh, onto the graves of the common people. And so Jehoiakim is, is um, not a good king, uh, nor is he a king who is interested in this message. But once again, they are saying this as a warning. In other words, we're already in trouble, people, priests, prophets. One prophet saying the same thing that Jeremiah is saying here has already been killed. For the same message that was given and regarded in the days of Hezekiah, we are on shaky ground here, is what these elders are saying. So then what happens to Jeremiah? We read the last verse. Verse 24, Nevertheless, the hand of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah, that they should not give him into the hand of the people to put him to death. So one of these princes in particular, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, advocated for Jeremiah, and so they did not kill him. A few good guys left. Well, then why doesn't it help? Why is it that when we get back into finishing our time travel, getting back into the days of Zedekiah, things are so bad? Why is it that by the, the time of the days of Hezekiah, or Zedekiah, we, we don't see anyone standing up anymore. Did these guys just lose their backbone? Well, I, I have a couple of thoughts here. First, we know that the king is an evil man. Corruption begins at the top and filters its way down, and so uh, there's likely uh, some level of corruption there over time. Second, we find that it was not the spiritual leaders, but the princes, the elders, that were advocating for Jeremiah. And so there, there's a corruption of the priests and the prophets, and of course that's never good. But third, remember what year we're in. We're in 609 B.C. here, most likely. The beginning of Jehoiakim's reign. 
And remember that the first deportation took place three or four years later in 605 B.C. And remember who goes to Babylon in that first deportation. I read for you, to give us this context, the first four verses of Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes." children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning and knowledge and understanding science and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning in the tongue of the Chaldeans. So in the third year of Jehoiakim, the first siege, the deportation takes place. The vessels from the house of the Lord, a portion of them are taken back to the land of Shinar. But the Bible also says that certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes were taken, those that were well-favored, those that were skillful, those that were wise, those that were cunning. And as we know, as this is the lead into Daniel, among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And if you want to talk about four men in the Bible of whom is tremendous faith, let's talk about Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. These were four men that on the day that Jeremiah was in that temple proclaiming the word of the Lord and being threatened with death, Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael lived in Jerusalem. Quite possibly the children of these princes. Quite possibly the, 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 the grandchildren of these elders. A lineage of godliness being passed down, being cared for, being recognized, and yet taken out of the land. The next generation of godly movers and shakers, the remnant of the, of the nation that might have had a little bit more influence in judgment were removed in that first deportation. More godly men. We know Ezekiel was taken in the second deportation, so Ezekiel will still be in uh, um, Jerusalem for a few more years. He'll be taken. He's, he's younger, though. He's probably at this time in uh, his, his mid to late teens. We know that his ministry starts when he's 30 years old, and that's in Babylon by the river Kibar. So he's probably in his mid to late teens at this point uh, there in Jerusalem. And this is perhaps one of the reasons why Jeremiah, who was, as we see here, advocated for in the early days of Jehoiakim, um, loses support, finds fewer and fewer to support him as time goes on. All right, that ends our exposition for today. I have two points of application. And there was a third point that I wanted to bring in, but I'm actually going to roll it over into a dedicated message. We're going to be starting at, uh, once we're finished with Revelation, which is in just a couple of weeks now, we're going to be starting into a family series, a topical family series, before we get into our next um, expositional series. And I'm going to talk specifically about a, this, this important topic of elders. And the importance of generational passing down of information, the importance of young people being willing to listen to those who have come before them. One of the great problems in our culture today 
that young people have absolutely cast off any respect for or regard for the generations that have gone before them. We'll talk about that in a dedicated sermon. It's not going to come up this evening, but I do have two points of application that I would like to bring up in our hearts for consideration as we go throughout this week. Point number one, remember this, there are a few good guys left. This is kind of a fun chapter, isn't it? I mean, it's not super great because the whole time it's about whether or not Jeremiah is going to die. But at the same time, it's neat that after all of this time in the book, it's been dark, it's been tough, it's been dismal. And then we go back to the first years of, the, of King Jehoiakim and we see Jeremiah proclaim this message boldly and we see people want to put him to death and then the elders and the princes stand up and say, look, this guy is not worthy of death. This man is saying truth. That's a great thing. We finally found out that there are other people that love the Lord in the land and that's refreshing, isn't it? Have you ever been there? where you feel like you're the only one and then you meet someone and you find out, oh, there's someone else here. Isn't that a big confidence boost? I mean, isn't that a big, like, just a shot in the arm when, when, when you realize I'm not alone in this? That there's someone else that I might be able to talk to? Even if it's just a glance as we're passing by on the way to do our respective jobs just to say, yep, yep, you're there too and I get it. That, that's, a, that's a wonderful thing. That's a blessing. It's extremely rewarding. And I mean, in a manner of speaking, I don't, I don't know how, how uh, important literary progression was to the writer here, but this is good writing. For nearly half of the book, Jeremiah has been going through this experience and we feel like we, we, we are with him and, and he's alone and he's having some hard times and we've, we've read some, I mean, right? We've read a point where he was ready to, he, he wanted to walk away. He said, I'm walking away, but he couldn't. And he didn't, but he wanted to. He wanted to just set it all down and walk away and never speak in the word of the Lord again. He's going through this dark, lonely walk through the final years of Israel's history, slouching toward inevitable judgment. And then here we are now, chapter 26 out of 52. Going back in time to the first days of Jehoiakim, something like perhaps 15 years after Jeremiah began his work during the reign of good King Josiah. And now we say, oh, it's like a deep breath. Jeremiah is not alone here. A little bit of an oasis for us. While the land was so corrupted that indeed God's judgment against it was fierce, all throughout there were individuals in the midst who regarded the prophecies of the word of the Lord. And from a literary standpoint, that's a true blessing. But from a faith standpoint, that's also extremely encouraging. It is not easy to be bold in the face of people who are not excited to hear what you had to say. It is not easy to put yourself out there and to stand for that which is right when you don't know what people are going to think or how people are going to react. We spoke a couple of weeks ago about the need to tell the truth and to stand for truth, about the importance of truth. But this is a significantly easier thing to say than it is to do in certain circumstances, isn't it? And now here we find Jeremiah. And he was ready for this day, wasn't he? 
Jeremiah is not reflecting in this chapter the same discouragement of times gone by. The same times where he got down on his knees and he said, Lord, am I really, are you really going to protect me? Is this really working? The times where we, we see a reflection of perhaps a, a, a lack of confidence in the Lord and then the Lord has to rebuke him and say, of course I will be that for you. I've said I will, but you need to stay on the path. You need to, you need to keep doing what is right. Here, Jeremiah is ready. He stood up. He makes his statements. He does not diminish a word. They want to kill him. And then he says to the princes, he says to the elders, kill me if you like, but this is the word of the Lord. And that's the kind of boldness we all want. And then Jeremiah, having been so bold, having been so forward, witnessed something wonderful that he perhaps did not expect. He witnessed as people who stood up and said, not only should this man not die, but we should listen to him. I don't know what kind of situations you have, are, or will find yourself in. When it's time for you to do what is right and it seems as though everyone around you is not interested. But I know the difficulty of choosing to stand up and to say, I'm going to do what's right. When I think or perceive or know that there are going to be negative responses or repercussions. But here's the thing. You never really know what the outcome of that stand will be, do you? Maybe it means a measure of personal sacrifice or loss. Maybe your worst fears from a physical sense become true. Even then there's eternal riches, there's eternal blessing, right? But maybe it is that you are mocked, that you are scorned, that you are persecuted. Maybe it is that you lose that position or that influence or that job or that relationship because you chose to stand and do what's right. But what if, just what if, Unknown to you, your boldness to say or to do what is right might inspire someone else to stand up who to this point lacks the courage or the character to do so on their own. What if your stand emboldens others to do so as well? What if your boldness brings others into a place of boldness? What if your stand solidifies someone else's faith? What if your obedience drew out some others who were just looking for an excuse to obey too, but just didn't quite have the courage or perhaps the character to do so on their own? One of the things that we were taught in high school and in college was that if you have a question, ask it, because most likely there's 10 other people that are unwilling to ask it who have the same question. And so if you have a question, ask it. And people regularly don't want to ask a question because they think they're the only one that isn't getting it. And so they don't ask the question because they say, then I'm going to look dumb. But every time they ask a question, and invariably someone comes up and says, thank you, I had that same question too. And I was one of those that always kept my mouth shut because I, that was just who I was. But my wife was one of the others who said, I was always willing to ask the question because someone would always come up to me and say, hey, yeah, I had that question too. Thank you for asking it. This is human nature. This is human nature. Now let's translate that to faith, not to asking questions in class. Or in church, by the way. Ask, ask questions. Not, not, not while I'm preaching, obviously, but ask questions. Questions are good. When, when, when we have forums for questions, ask. You're probably not the only one. People aren't going to think that you're a fool for asking the question. You're probably not the only one with it. Anyway, we translate that to the faith. What if 
there are people around you that want to stand up, that want to, to believe in something. And they're just waiting for someone whom they can stand with. What if you could be that one who would embolden them to take the step and to say, no, this is right. What if you aren't alone? What if you know you aren't alone? The Bible reminds us at several points that there is always a remnant. You just have to find them. And let this encourage you. Let this embolden you. You be the one to take the stand. You be the one to do what is right. And it may just be that in doing so, you might lead others into the right as well. Because there are a few good guys left. Point number two. If rebuke makes you angry, check your heart. We spoke of this a while ago, but it's worth bubbling up to the top again. We'll look at several verses in this regard. Here in Jeremiah, we read of the prophet telling the people the truth, and they respond in anger. Rather than allow the extreme nature of the claims to draw their hearts, to cause them to think about the manner in which they are living, they immediately become upset that someone is questioning their motives or their actions, even to the point of wanting Jeremiah dead. Now, obviously, well, I hope that there have not been too many instances in your life where you have wanted to, find, you know, to, to see someone get the death penalty because they offended you. But that being said, I want you to try to translate this into your own heart for a moment. How do you respond when people are critical of something that you do? How do I respond when someone criticizes my sermons? The way I preach, the way I, I or our church does things. Well, I can do many different things, right? I can have many different responses. I can get defensive. I can get upset. I can get indignant. I can be offended. I can see this as a threat to my way of doing things, as a threat um, to, to my capacities, as some sort of put down of, of my ability to preach or, or uh, my wisdom in, in various elements of, of my ministry. I can see it as a judgment upon me or I can stop. I can consider. I can make a reasoned judgment. I can be easily entreated. And I can grow from it. How do you respond when someone is critical of something that you're doing, warns against an action, whatever the case may be, is your heart willing to listen? Genuinely consider what they're saying. Do you have the humility to accept such criticisms, to accept warnings, to accept rebukes, or do you immediately get upset, shut off your ears, get indignant, become stubborn, refuse to listen? Get angry. This is a reflection of pride. It's something that is quite natural in the human heart, but it's not right in the human heart. It's pride that makes me angry when someone reproves me. It's pride that causes me to stubbornly shut my ears to advice, to criticism, or to disagreement. It is pride that causes me to scorn those that disagree with me or to hate those that don't think the same way I do. So the Bible says, Proverbs chapter 9, verses 8 and 9, Reprove not a scorner, lest he hate thee. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love thee. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be yet wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. 
Which one are you? Are you the scorner? The one who gets upset at people when they rebuke you? The one who shuts your ears, hardens your heart against someone who says something, even if you know it's right? This happens among my children all the time and most siblings, right? One sibling says to another sibling, you're supposed to do this, and because it was the sibling that said it to the sibling, the other sibling gets angry. How dare you say that to me? Well, it's true, isn't it? Well, yes, but you don't have any authority. Well, it, it's true, isn't it, right? But you get angry. What's that, what's that reflecting? It's pride. It's pride. Proverbs 13.1 A wise son heareth his father's instruction, but a scorner heareth not rebuke. A scorner won't listen. A scorner won't hear it. A scorner won't change. A scorner won't regard. The wise son, the wise man, hears. Listen. It may be that, that, that the person's criticism is invalid. Or it may be that their, their criticism is valid, but that doesn't mean you have to change. Not everyone's going to like my sermons. Not everyone's going to like the, the, the style that I use. Not everyone is going to like the length of them. Not everyone is going to like uh, various elements uh, of how I present them. Not everyone, uh, not everyone is going to like the fact that I read all the verses. I remember I had a professor who told me, stop reading them, just summarize the verses. I want to read them. But you take that and you learn something from it. What was he trying to tell me when he said, stop reading them, summarize them? that people might lose you if you spend too much time just reading. They can read it on their own. Just tell them what they need. It probably would reduce my sermons in length quite a bit if I just said, read it on your own and I just summarize, right? But I kind of like the idea that perhaps at the end of my ministry we will have read through the whole Bible together. It's kind of, it's kind of a neat thought to me. Anyway, these are the, the, this is the idea, right? Proverbs 15, 12. A scorner loveth not one that reproveth him, neither will he go unto the wise. Scorner says, I'm not going to talk to that person anymore because they're critical. Maybe that's exactly what you need in your life. Someone to look at you and to make you better. Someone to help build you up by tearing you down a little bit. Maybe that's what you need. And here's the reason why your reaction to others is so important. Because the way that you react to criticism by others and the way you react to instruction by others, the disposition of your heart as it relates to being told what you are doing is not good or could be otherwise reveals whether pride or humility dominates your heart. And how you react to others is a direct reflection of how you will react to God. When the Spirit of God comes to you and says, one day it's time for your heart to change. If your heart is driven by pride, it's not going to matter whether it's an elder. It's not going to matter whether it is a father. It's not going to matter whether it is a friend or whether it is the Spirit of God. If your heart is hardened against reproof, then you are going to lose one of the most valuable assets that the Spirit of God has to grow you to change you, to make you better for Him. Because the dross has to be burned off sometimes if we're going to become pure. 
So let's transition our thinking from how we react to our boss or our parent or our sibling or our neighbor to how we react to God because the concept is the same. So we read in Proverbs 15, 33, the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom and before honor is humility. Proverbs 16, 19, better is it, better it is, excuse me, to be of an humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Proverbs 18.12, Before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty, and before honor is humility. Proverbs 22.4, By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Proverbs 29.23, A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. And all of this reveals that God blesses the humble and resists the proud. And if we want the Lord's blessing, then how we react to rebuke as it relates to the Lord, to his word, is essential. And if you want to know how you react to rebuke, we don't always have to go directly to the spirit of God. How do you react to rebuke when your parents tell you something? How do you react to rebuke when your sibling is right about something and tells you to do something that you didn't want to hear? How do you react to the rebuke of your friend, of your neighbor, of your pastor, of fill in the blank? It gives us insight into whether or not we have a spirit that is easy to be entreated, whether or not we have a heart that is malleable, that is, that is listening And it's going to give us insight into how we will respond when the Lord brings about rebukes. So the Bible calls us to be humble. And we read in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. Surely he scorneth the scorners, but he giveth grace unto the lowly. And James quotes that verse in James chapter 4, verse 6. But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Our first point was simply this. There are a few good guys left. And that's an encouraging point. Reminding us to take that stand, to look for those who would take that stand as well. Our second point, it's a question, of course, about rebuke. The point being, if rebuke makes you angry, check your heart. The question is, does rebuke make you angry? Do you need to check your heart? Let's take time to really search our hearts on this. How is your heart as it relates to rebuke, criticism, instruction, correction? Are you proud or are you humble? Your response to others is a reflection of what is in your heart. And it matters because the fastest way to God resisting you is to walk in pride. And the fastest way to finding grace in the eyes of God is to walk in humility. The people's response to Jeremiah's words, their anger, their outrage, said far more about their hearts than it did about anything that Jeremiah said or did on that day. It showed that they were arrogant. It showed that they were self-righteous. It showed that they were unwilling to hear the word of the Lord, and that mainly because they were unwilling to receive the rebuke of the Lord. 
And we see that strongly contrasted with the elders, with those who had seen some things, with those who had lived for a while, with those who had been in the trenches of that spiritual warfare, who had seen Micah the Morrisite, who had seen Uriah die, and who had said, this is true, you should listen. Now things didn't change, which means they ignored Jeremiah, and they ignored the princes, and they ignored the elders, Right? Let us be careful that our hearts are not in that same place. It is very easy in a heart of pride to justify why we are not going to listen to someone. Well, what do they know anyway? They're not a pastor, right? What do they know anyway? They're not in that situation. They're just so-and-so. They're just whatever. It's very easy to justify. But, but let us be careful that we are not operating with a heart of pride. What is your response to rebuke? What is your response to correction? What is your response to dissent? And if you've seen that in yourself tonight, I encourage you to start down the path of getting that right, getting it right with God, getting it right with others, so that we might have the grace of God that comes through humility. And we don't end up in the place where we are scorners. We don't end up in a place where we have hardened our heart to truth, to rebuke, to instruction, because rebukes of instruction are the way of life. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.